welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast looking at how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. I'm Christina Patterson. I'm a writer, broadcaster and coach. And today I'm really delighted to welcome Joe Hildebrand, Managing Director, Leadership and Culture and Europe Lead at Accenture. Joe has held senior leadership positions at BT, has been a management consultant at Accenture and Deloitte and was Managing Director of What If Innovation before taking on his current role. He has helped to develop leadership and culture in companies across different sectors, from drinks to computer games to pharmaceuticals. In this podcast, he talks about changes in corporate culture and what to do if you hate your job. Welcome to The Art of Work. I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Christina. Delighted to be here. So I think you're the first person I've had on this podcast with a comma in their job title. So what, so what does a managing director, comma, European leadership and culture lead do? Well, I'm still working it out every day, to be honest. Uh, so I, I have the, the pleasure and the privilege of looking after the leadership and culture practice at Accenture, um, specifically for Europe. I'm based in London in the UK, um, and that is all about the work that we shape and deliver to our clients to help them think about how they create a future for their business, looking at their leaders, looking at their people, thinking about how they change the mindsets and the behaviours and the habits of of everyone in their organisation. Interesting and a very succinct summary, if I (laughs) may say. (laughs) So broadly, um, I suppose people would describe Accenture as a management consultancy, what would you call it? And in what way would you say it's different to the big four? Mm. Well, I think interestingly, uh, the question is a good one, because I think people have a particular perception of Accenture, which is grounded in the reality of many years. But actually, this uh, leadership and culture practice and other practices at Accenture are looking to change that perception. Mm. I think People rightly see Accenture more as a technology service provider and a systems integrator, the kind of company that you would call if you wanted to implement a big new IT system in your organization. Mm. Um, But actually, there's a really deliberate effort at the moment from our CEO, Judy Sweet, and, and all of the leadership team across Accenture to help us become a little bit more balanced. So our new, um, purpose is about delivering on the promise of technology and human ingenuity and i think it's that human ingenuity piece that is really important um you know our people and our clients are recognizing that you can't really do anything successfully and create a sustainable impact in your organization unless you think about the people as much as the systems and the processes so i think we're different from others because we are, I think, pretty uniquely placed to bring those two worlds together, the technology and human ingenuity piece. I think the scale is quite extraordinary. I still struggle to get my head around 624,000 mm. people worldwide. And I can't remember, so like 118,000 people hired just in the last year and thousands more in the UK have just been announced. So the scale is, is brilliant. Um, And it means also that with that scale comes the capability and the skill to offer the whole kind of end-to-end journey for a client, all the way from thinking about their strategy and their vision and what they want to become through to kind of realizing it through their systems, their processes, their people, their organization design, their marketing, everything that you can think of. Um, So, yeah, I think that sets us out quite a lot, but I think we've got a, a way to go on 
the human ingenuity side. I think we stand out quite well on the technology side, but there's more to do elsewhere. Mm. And you started off your career at Accenture 16 mm. years ago, and you've now come full circle. Yes. What was it like coming back? And were there any of your original colleagues? Are any of them still there? And if so, what was it like reconnecting with them? Yeah, they are. So I, I, I always forget it was either September the 5th or September the 15th, 2005. I started, just graduated from uni, joined Accenture, um, and I left five years to the day. So 2010, <laughs> the 5th or the 15th of September, which did my OCD wonders. But I, um, <laughs> I it wasn't even planned. It just worked out perfectly. Uh it was, frankly, it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster when we were first acquired. So I was working for um, an agency called What If Innovation for six years. Really, really wonderful organisation that focuses on innovation, but it also focuses on leadership and culture. And we were bought in March 2019. And when I got told we were being bought by Accenture, it was... Yeah, I, it, it wasn't, I, I didn't jump for joy at that point mm. because it was a business that I had left mm. 10 years ago. Mm. Um, since we've joined, actually, I've been blown away by the difference. The, the company has, Accenture has, has evolved dramatically in the, what, kind of 15, 16 years, no, sorry, 10, 11 years since I was there last. Um, and the kind of stuff that fascinates me and interests me in the leadership and culture space is really well valued and clearly a big part of the future agenda of Accenture. So that was that was really good. And I have reconnected with people that um, I either joined with in my start group in 2005. There are some who are still around and people that I worked with during my time at Accenture. And it's been a real pleasure. It's been lovely to reconnect with them and and kind of learn from their journey as well and, and learn how to kind of integrate back into Accenture with uh, with their advice and just to kind of reconnect with people that I haven't seen for such a long time but but spent so much time with when I when I had met them so it was, it was really nice. Mm. And um, I might have anticipated the honesty of your answer Joe for, uh, for people listening we met on a coaching course this year and um, got used to opening up to the little people in tablets on our screen we only met in real life about 10 days ago yeah. but um, uh, I think uh, it's good that that you uh, were able to say that your heart did not leap for joy when you first joined Accenture but luckily there seems to have been a happy ending or at least a happy short-term short-term <laughs> in that in that things seem to be Seem to be going well now. I know when you were at What If, you had the best job title in the world, which is something like lead inventor. Tell <laughs> us about lead, what being a lead inventor is. Gosh, yes. Well, we we did all have funky job titles. Um, I I I was essentially there to um, not kind of not something that's hugely different to what I do now. So kind of show, shape and deliver culture work for our clients, um, and the inventor job title was born out of the work that was um, traditionally the kind of bread and butter of, of What If, which was the kind of creation of new products and services and propositions and business models for clients. But I, I was working on the culture side. So my job was a couple of things. I think firstly, to um, work with clients or potential clients and help them shape uh, a, a program of work. So they would either come to us through uh, requesting a proposal or we'd have a contact there or someone we'd worked with moved to a new business and wanted to bring us in so I would help them think about 
what the piece of work could look like, how we could help them solve their challenges, what we were going to be best placed to support them with and, and where they might want to go elsewhere, you know, and, and also to really prod and provoke them into thinking differently about what they need to do. Um, then it was to lead the work itself. So if we were fortunate enough to, to win a piece of work, uh, I would be on the ground partnering with the rest of the team and with the client and actually thinking about what we need to do and how we need to do it and going to deliver it. And that could be anything from uh, facilitating large workshops and working sessions to help the client think about their future vision and ambition through to um, training people in organizations to think about how they experiment with new mindsets and behaviors through to running leadership development for CEOs and their teams, everything you can think of. And what came with that was the, the real pleasure of having some kind of people lead responsibilities. So nurturing and helping our talent grow and develop in everything they did and also helping with thought leadership. So we might be delivering great stuff today, but what do we want the stuff tomorrow to look like that we're going to deliver? And what are the, the trends and the, the considerations out in the market and beyond that we want to solve for? So it was a good mix of thought leadership, um, partnering with clients and kind of selling our work and, and delivering it as well. And what was it like? Because um, you were made managing director relatively quickly. Did it feel like a leap? Well, I went through, there was one, one more level after lead inventor. So I became a director and then I became, man, became a managing director. It, it was all, gosh, it, it was all quite weird, really, because I became an MD after we were bored. So um, I kind of became an MD in Accenture land. It was all rather complex mm. and complicated. It, in one way, felt like recognition for the hard work and, and impact that I believe I, I had had in the previous years. Um, in another way, it certainly felt like a big leap. Um, you become, you know, when you, when when one hovers over your name in on email or on Teams uh, Accenture now, it says Accenture Leadership when, when my name comes up and that, and that's the same for all MDs, but it is, that is quite a leap. You become far more invested, I think, in the future of the organization yeah. and you feel there's an onus, I think, on, on the role modelling. Not that there wasn't before, I guess, but it becomes a lot more acute, I suppose. There's, there's the real onus on you to set the tone, set the agenda for your part of the organisation and, you know, at times almost run a part of your own business, which is something that I'd never done before. I'm writing a business plan or part of a business plan at the moment for our new practice. I've never done that before. Mm. Um, I've always been a very happy kind of practitioner I love the content of the work that we do. And I think as you move into roles like an MD, you continue to do that, but also there are new new things to think about and new obligations that you have that are far more about running the business. You're a very down-to-earth kind of guy, unless you've been lying every time. <laughs> you certainly get the impression of it. Um, uh, has there been anything about, you know, being a, a managing director that has made you think, oh, my God, I got to behave like sort of more of a, a suit now? Mm. If, if I, I think if I had been where I was today, having not been through six years of being at What If, then mm. the answer would probably be yes to what you've just asked. I would feel more obliged to be a suit. Um the, the most valuable experience I've had in my working career has been the six years at WASIF, where I've learned that actually you can be a senior leader 
who knows what they're talking about and is vulnerable and caring and doesn't always have the right answer and show up in a t-shirt and jeans, um, maybe not cleanly shaven, you know, and, and just be valued for what you do and most importantly, how you do it. And so then, no, I mean, you can't see me now, but I've just come back from the gym. I'm wearing a tracksuit and a, and a zip up hoodie. And I've been on various client calls and internal calls today. And I think that's, that's really important tone to set for your mm. people. That you value what they do, not necessarily how they're dressed every time. Of course, there are occasions, you know, where you really have to dress up and that's, that's right. But the importance that's placed on things like that, both visually and also, I suppose, uh, not metaphorically, but like the, the kind of sitting behind your question, kind of showing up like a suit, it, it, it undermines actually the importance of just being caring about what you do and how you do it, rather than just showing up and, and looking the way that you need to look. Mm. The counter argument to that I suppose would be a kind of fetishization of dress down culture to the point where we had Steve Hilton you know famously padding around Downing Street in his socks and and the whole Silicon Valley thing Peter York actually is very very funny on that and he he talks about how um it you know kind of a Silicon roundabout startup people are kind of when funders potential funders come into the offices pre-pandemic obviously everybody would be you know putting on their hoodies to look apart <laughs> I mean do you think the pendulum can has swung too far or can swing too far well I don't I don't think so I think this is just one manifestation of the bigger question of what's important to employers when they're hiring and developing and retaining their talent I would question any leader who places such a significant effort, uh, you know, um, focus on attire, I would question whether they really care about the value that that person is delivering. But there are different circumstances where that's, you know, that's different. You know, if you're a police officer and you walk around with your shirt untucked, mm. you know, that's probably not the right, you know, perception for people to have of you. If there are certain jobs where you have to look a certain way, I understand that. But I, I think we're in the age now where, and you know, maybe startups and Silicon Valley kind of catalyze this, but we're at the age where it's really important that we as leaders care about what our people care about and what they do and how they show up verbally and and you know, not necessarily just how they're dressed or it's hard to describe, Christina, but I, I don't I don't see the pendulum swinging too far. Mm. I think it's just an example of where we should be caring about different things. Mm. Interesting. There's a lot in that that I want to ask you about. But, but first of all, I, I want to ask you about sort of where it all started. Um, at What was your model of work as a child? As in what did I see around me? Yeah. And your parents uh, and your family and, you know, what were the expectations of you work, work or career wise? My So my father had his own business as an accountant. He set up um, his county he was very hard working and you know not ashamed of the fact that he failed many tests and assessments and degrees and eventually well no, no degrees in fact but and, and got to where he got to because he, he was very driven and determined mm. so he worked really hard 
my mum um, had various different jobs as a kind of teaching assistant and, um, and at times was kind of looking after me and my sister. Um, and I suppose, you know, my friends and their parents and other relations were very mixed. I mean, we were you know, certainly fortunate to be in a kind of middle class background. And so I was exposed to certain things and that kind of felt the norm. I was the first one in our family to go to, to university. Um, that was never on the cards before. And I, um, all I knew I wanted was to go out and do something that I enjoyed. Mm. I came really close to failing my degree. Um, I got a 2-2. I was very close, or a Desmond, as I'm told it's like to be called. Uh, really? Desmond. I've never heard that before, really. <laughs> Desmond 2-2. Uh, <laughs> there we go. You can have that one for free, Christina. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Joe. You're welcome. Uh, and I was never academic. I don't think I'm from a particularly academic family. My sister's far more academic than I am, and my mum as well, actually. Um, so it was all about graft, really, and hard work. And that was what I aspired to, wanting to do well for myself and my family and create a nice family around me and support them. And like I say, you know, do a job that I enjoyed, not a job that I felt I had to do. Mm. And you you did a degree in management studies with information mm. systems and got your Desmond. Um, yes. And um, so did you know that you wanted a career in business when you set off to, to study? I, I started my degree in 2002, I think, yeah, 2002. And at that time, <laughs> gosh, it feels like such a long time ago, I guess it was, it was a case of, you know, computers of the future. Mm. You know, you've got to be smart and go and study something that involves computing. I knew that. So that was part of it. I did this joint honours between those two things that you've described. And then the other part was I just found, like I did business studies and economics for A-level. I just found that side of things, the kind of, I was going to say corporate, that's not true. The business side, the economic side, I just find it really interesting. So that was kind of the the perfect blend for me. So I always thought because of what I described, having seen my dad uh, start his own business and my granddad had as well, and my other grandfather had his own business, I'd always thought I wanted to go and start my own business. Um, and actually kind of scratching that itch is what you and I have done together, Christina, as I've kind of looked into coaching, because that's mm. certainly something that I might want to do more in the future and, and do it on my own or with a few others. But I, I did know well, basically, I got, I, I'd never heard of Accenture before. I was interested in the business consulting world. And then in my third year, one of our modules at Leeds Uni was sponsored by Accenture. So I um, looked into them and applied. I was really excited by it and then got off the job. And it it, it kind of delivered in the most part on, on what I was hoping for. So I, I think I've always had that aspiration to work in the business world, but you know, as you know, I think I was a, a police officer, a special constable for three years during my working career. That has always been something that really, really appealed to me and something that I strongly considered doing full time, mm. but, but decided against. And I think I have quite a broad, I don't know, a broad view of the kind of things that interest me. But, but the business world seemed, frankly, Christina, to be both interesting, but also somewhere that I could earn my keep. Mm, I wish you were running the Met, but anyway, let's not <laughs> let's not go there. Um, and you you were brought up as a practicing Jew. 
How far has your, or rather in what ways would you say your Judaism has shaped your attitude to work? I, a practicing Jew in as far as I'm proud to be Jewish and we, and we like the Hanukkah every Hanukkah and I fast once a year, but, but no more than that. So I, I would describe myself as very Jewish by race rather than religion. Yeah. Um, and I think the way that's shaped a lot of things for me, it has just been the, 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 the ethical side, the morality of religion, Judaism or otherwise, you know, having integrity, making the right decisions in the right way, you know, being honest, being respectful, caring for each other. Charity is a really big part of Judaism as well. So, you know, thinking about how I can apply what I've learned in my career to charitable endeavours as well, which I've, I've had the pleasure of doing on a couple of occasions. So I think it's it's been, yeah, that side of things, just principles for life, I suppose, as opposed to religion per se. Mm, mm. And um, I know that uh, diversity and particularly diversity in leadership is very important to you. Of course, everybody's talking about it now, but, uh, you know, the question is, do you put your money where your mouth is? What mm. what do you do at work to try to ensure a more diverse range of people? It's really hard. It's really, really hard. And, and, it's, and it's kind of multifaceted for me because I help, to, you know, I've been involved with a couple of projects looking at the diversity, equity and inclusion agenda for clients. And I've also got that hat on when it comes to building the teams around me. And I, I find it, I find it really tricky, frankly. So there is, you know, Accenture might like many other companies have, have set some, some really ambitious targets around creating a diverse workforce, both from a, you know, race perspective and also from a gender perspective and, every, and everything else. And, and it's all laudable and really positive. I always question, I don't know, whether the metrics really solve the problem. It just seems far more ingrained than that and therefore far more difficult to solve. I think in innovation, we talk a lot about cognitive diversity, you know, the kind of diversity of thought, which is agnostic almost of race or religion or gender or whatever what you want to be able to innovate is lots of different people with lots of different backgrounds of all sorts socioeconomic religious racial whatever it might be in order to bring lots of diverse thinking together to solve a problem in a way that has never been solved for before so it's really incumbent on us to create a diverse workforce and that you know we we do keep a real close eye. I personally keep a real close eye on how we show up, I suppose, in our teams and in our clients. So we've had lots of good conversations. And I must say, I find this really difficult to talk about because I, I really, really care about this topic. Mm, and I, I know. To, to articulate it without fear of saying something offensive. And I, and I don't think I will. But you know, when we show up to clients on a pitch, for example, I don't want five white men showing up to a client on the pitch, for example, you know, it, whether it's in a diversity and inclusion conversation or not, mm. uh, whatever the conversation is, we need to show up in a way that we're representative of the, of the public and representative of the clients and teams that we're working with. So there's a lot of positive stuff that's going on around kind of our employee resource groups, uh, which are kind of, um, uh, kind of networks of, of, of different religions and races that, 
that have really good kind of thought leaders and, and people come in and talk to them about the art of the possible and what to look out for and how to be you know, great at what you do and show up really well, regardless of what your background is. There's, there's a lot of really positive stuff in there. Um, I think, you know, I, alongside all of the other leaders at Accenture, spend a lot of time and effort thinking as we recruit as to whether we are recruiting people for diversity. Uh, it, it can't be at the expense of quality of candidate, and, and I don't think it ever will be, and that's always you know, part of the tricky conversation. But I think on recruitment, we're really, really hot and trying to make sure that we have a, a representative group of individuals. I, and as part of culture, I, I want to ask about hours. Um, did you Have you had to do crazy hours as a consultant or at any other point in your career I mean like you know I've had friends who've done 100 hour weeks as management consultants and so on it's peaks and troughs I think um, in the early part of my career when I first graduated and I felt I had a lot to prove frankly and I had a lot of aspirations to grow and develop yeah I was working crazy hours and I was I'll never you know I spent 18 months driving from Watford to Reading and back every single day on the M25 as a 23-year-old or whatever I was. And I look back at that now and I go, A, I have no idea how I did that. And B, having spent an hour, 90 minutes on the road in rush hour and then arriving at work, I have no idea how I did a day's work after Mm -hmm. that. Mm. Um, So it it reminded me of the resilience I once had and that is rapidly dissipating. So there have been, you know, and that's, that wasn't unique to the early part of my career. There have been many days and weeks and months where I've worked really hard and long hours. But, but I do, I think one of the big realisations that I've had probably too late and over the recent years has been I will work my backside off and work long hours at a moment in time when there is something important to do that I enjoy but now what I used to feel was guilty when in the subsequent days I would do half a day or three quarters of a day work now I don't feel guilty Mm. Um, and the reason being you know back to some of the wellness conversation we had earlier I think that concept of recovery Mm. being as important to performance as anything else is being far better understood and I think there's a recognition that people need that time to recharge and recover and 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 therefore we shouldn't feel guilty doing it so i think slightly off off your question but for me it does peak and trough i have set boundaries recently well not that recently quite a while ago so i'll never take a meeting before 9am because i'm not a morning person i'd rather work a little bit later and because i usually Um, My wife will correct me if she's listening to this, but usually get up in the morning and help get the kids ready for for school while while Charlotte, my wife, gets ready for work. Um, I also won't work weekends. And if I keep those those, um, guardrails in place, as I have done for some time, that might mean on a weekday I'll work a little bit late and I'm all right with that. Um, So I guess it's just about setting those boundaries. And and it certainly becomes easier, Christine, I think, Mm. as you more senior I think that is what Mm. it is sad but true um but it therefore is also incumbent upon me to create the safe space for my people no matter how junior they are to do the same I mean I I must admit Joe I find it breathtaking that you don't work weekends I mean very impressive but I mean I barely remember a weekend in my life when I haven't worked 
Um, but I, I guess, uh, well, a, there's one thing, A, being freelance and B, but also in journalism, I think the, the kind, there is a kind of sense that people tend to work, if not all the time, then a lot of the time, or if not, if not actually working, sort of, you know, consuming the news or stuff that is, or reading a book for work or, mm. or whatever. But we, we spoke some months ago when I was writing a piece about graduate trainees at Goldman Sachs were protesting mm. about their working hours and the, uh, the first sentence of my piece was the bankers are revolting which I have to admit gave me great satisfaction <laughs> but, um, but un- unfortunately the editor saw photos of people on a beach on a weekday and then wanted a thundering piece on will people ever go back to the office which I yes. refused to write so my piece was scrapped as, as you know but one yeah. of the issues we discussed then was what younger workers are prepared to put up with and traditionally the trade-off has been if you want that kind of money and if you want to climb the career ladder you do those hours now you have climbed the career ladder um and i'm not going to ask you about money but i assume it's not exactly minimum wage isn't that just the trade-off or are our younger workers now right right to want everything basically kind of work-life balance and good money mm. well i don't get paid so i don't know no that's not true i, I... <laughs> I this links back I think both to your question around kind of suits and mm-hmm. working hours I think the dynamic has changed uh, the, 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 it's been quite some time it's, it's been true for a while I should say that um, I think employees or potential employees have rightly in my opinion recognized that when they're interviewing for a job it's a it's a two-way interview the employee is interviewing the employer at the same time. If I said that to my dad, you know, he would tell me I'm mad. You know, he would mm-hmm. tell me it's all about the employer and actually you're privileged and, and you know, it, you should count your lucky stars if you get to work for a, a big company and they want you. And obviously that's all true. It's, it is a privilege. But the dynamic is very clear that with the, the war on talent or, or whatever kind of term you want to use, the power is with the employee and we've just got to recognize that as a truth i think if if you don't offer something as an employer or a whole suite of things a whole proposition as an employer that the best talent in the world wants then you won't get the best talent and if you don't get the best talent then you won't grow as an organization if you don't grow you have to lay people off and eventually you disappear you know there there is no two ways about it anymore I think it's very, very clear that employers need to, and and are in the most part from what I've seen, maybe there are some exceptions, employers need to recognise that employees are making a choice as well. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, obviously, everyone's talking about the great resignation. And and so it's so interesting because the areas I've worked in, the arts, predominantly the arts and journalism, the power is completely with the employer because everybody wants to work in them. The pay is rubbish and... um, you know, you have no negotiating or minimal negotiating power. So what you talk about in a business context is completely unrecognizable to people I know who've worked in my world. You don't get any training. You don't get any of that stuff because they couldn't care less whether you stay or go. I mean, they could, obviously, if they if, you know, you're a star writer or whatever. But broadly speaking, the wooing goes the other way around. <laughs> Well, that's really interesting, and and you're making me think I'm I'm probably being quite blinkered, quite narrow in in my perspective because it's it's not all about consulting and, and financial services and stuff. There's a hell of a lot 
of a, a bigger world out there, and maybe this isn't true across the board. Um, but I, you know, there are irrefutable dynamics that are changing that will affect all industries, whether it's the arts or whatever, around kind of globalization and, and the freedom of movement of talents. You know, if you don't offer something that's exciting, people find it far easier to go somewhere else geographically and find something that does suit them. And especially with COVID now, your choice is even bigger because when you're looking at a job description, can't think of many job descriptions I've seen recently, actually, that have got a location on them. Mm. You know, other than the country perhaps, but I've got people all around the world working as if uh, they were sitting next to me at a desk. And I, I would imagine maybe less so, but to an extent that that applies to the, the arts world as well. No, I don't think it does apply to the arts world, actually. No, because, well, well, unfortunately, the arts world has been so badly hit by the pandemic and probably yeah. is about to be hit again. But you generally have to be on site to produce stuff. Obviously, if you're writing, you can do that anywhere. But um, but it's very interesting. I, I mean, I kind of feel it seems to me that there's actually quite a big polarisation, not just between those who have the luxury of working from home and those who don't, but those... The, the increasingly gig economy, which applies increasingly to journalism, the arts, so many of the kind of so-called creative industries and the world of business where um, there seems to be this great hemorrhaging of talent and everybody's desperate to attract it. And it's sort of it'll be interesting to see what the ramifications of that are. I mean, you know, I'm sure you heard about Prince Harry last week saying that people should leave their jobs if they don't give them joy, which, of course, is you know relatively easy to do if you have 30 million in the bank um where are you on this i mean what you know it's you talked a bit about what gives you pleasure in your work how much can reason, people reasonably expect to get joy at work i when someone says to me in fact i think i've even got it on my linkedin profile you know what what my purpose is at work it is to make big business a better more playful impactful place to work i do believe that we should each be able to find a job that excites us and gives us joy and energizes us. I, I do believe also there will be moments in time in that job where it gives you none of those things, mm. or you may have jobs in between, you know, that don't give you any of those things. But I think I, I would strongly agree that joy is a, an important criteria to, uh, to think about as you're looking for a job. And I, and maybe naively, Christina, maybe naively, I don't know, I do, for me personally, I think I've said this to you before, my litmus test of around whether I enjoy my work, whether I want to stay with the business that I'm with, is the Sunday night dread. Mm, so yeah. if, I'm going to, if I'm going to bed on Sunday night, and I think I really can't face work tomorrow, then I'm going to start looking for another job. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very good litmus test, actually. I've hardly ever had that in my life, I must say. And the mm. only time I did was when there was a change of regime at my newspaper. I mean, I didn't exactly have that, but the joy certainly uh, felt rather less intense when, <laughs> when that change of regime kicked in. What? So what have you disliked most in the jobs you've done? And have you ever been really unhappy in a job? Yeah, I have. I have been very unhappy in a job. Um, and that's what spurred me into moving on a couple of occasions. So I think the there were two two specific occasions that I had that kind of litmus test failed and it made me look for another job. So one was where I found the leadership of an organisation that I was working for to be um, 
terrible, frankly. It really was in in every way, very kind of, um, I, you know, I'd go as far as to say sometimes like misogynistic in places, but also just very like a, a bit of a boys club and not very inclusive and just all about the, the figures and the money and all of that kind of stuff. There was no kind of purpose or energy. It just felt like a bit of a, a working house of some sort, you know, it was just, it wasn't, it wasn't pleasant. And then another occasion where I just, you know, with no, um, what's the word, ill feeling towards my boss or the employer, I just kind of had a realisation where I was like, if I want to grow and develop in this organisation, I either need to be in finance or operations. That's what's valued in this mm. business, rightly or wrongly, it is what it is. I neither want to be in finance nor operations, so I'm going to find somewhere else mm. where I can grow and develop doing what I want to do. Um, and I haven't regretted a move ever, I think. And I think because I, I'm quite rational. Well, I'm equally as emotional, actually, so I'm conf I confuse myself most days. But <laughs> I, um, I, maybe I'm not that rational at all. I, um, I think it goes back to your question around joy. Like both of those things were indicators for me that I wasn't enjoying myself and, and life felt too short to get up mm. in the morning trudge to work, feel totally, you know, joyless, I guess, and then come home again. It's just not worth it. I, I had Chris Barris-Brown on the podcast a few weeks yes. ago, and he was at What If for a while. And one of the things he talked about was crafting a job that works for you. How mm. feasible, I mean, obviously freelancers do that, those of us with a sort of so-called portfolio life do that, but how feasible is that in a, in a big corporate I think it's feasible. I think it, there's just so many variables. It just depends. It depends on so much. It depends on your leader and the space they're willing to give you, which comes back to kind of trust and all of those important things. It comes back to a particular moment at time in time where you're taking that role. So are you taking an emergent role or a new role where actually you've been brought on board to do exactly that, to kind of craft it and shape it? Or are you joining a business or a team or a role that has already been preset, predetermined. Um, but I would say even if the kind of the why and the what, taking Simon Sinek's uh, golden circle or whatever he calls it, if you, even if the why and the what is set, I absolutely believe that everyone can play with the, the how. Mm. How are you going to execute that job? How are you going to deliver it? How are you going to show up? How are you going to care for the people around you? Those things are rarely prescribed. And if they are, hopefully, is in, in, you know, from a behaviours and values perspective, which is a positive thing. Um, but it, it takes me back also to something that I remember, again, at a previous job where we went through a leadership development programme and the CEO stood up and he said, look, you've all got a choice you can either be a victim or a leader. Mm. There's, there's nothing in between. And it doesn't have to be a leader with a capital L. It just means you can lead yourself and others through a particular journey um, or a particular moment in time. And I think that's true in, in most, if not every role. You can craft elements of it. The question, I suppose, is, are you empowered to craft enough that will satisfy you or is it too constrained and therefore it's not the job for you? Mm, mm. and a, a sort of keeping a clear-eyed approach so you can assess realistically how far you do have some autonomy mm. and if you don't then I guess you just leave if you can mm. 
Yeah, I mean, that said, and maybe I'm wrong in saying this, but I read an article ages ago in, on the topic of innovation, it was in HBR or something, it was talking about the importance of what they described as maintainers. So innovation and, and design thinking about stuff is the sexy stuff, and mm. therefore we often forget about the people that keep the business running. Yeah. The people that might be a little bit more rules-based, a little bit more analytical, who aren't necessarily looking to craft every element of their job. I'm sure they want to craft part of it. And the value that they bring through consistency and structure is really important. So I think the question of crafting your own role, and again, maybe unfairly, I would say this is, is one of more importance to those in the creative world or with a creative mindset than perhaps those who have more of an analytical mindset. Maybe that's not true, mm. but I think you know, it, could, it could be. Mm. Well, I think you can have jobs that sound ostensibly very creative and are actually very administrative. So I, mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, the reality is really, it, in a sense, it all comes down to your actual experience of the work and yeah. whether you find it reasonably fulfilling and satisfying and enough to make you want to carry on doing it. I mean, one, one business fashion is certainly to talk about creativity at work. What, what does that actually look like and how can you realistically foster more of it? Creativity at work. Mm. It's, in your kind of con- your kind of context, obviously you know what it looks like in theatre or opera. <laughs> yeah, I mean, can't give you many tips on acting, um, but I, so I it can show up in lots of different ways. So I think it's creativity in in how you think as you approach a problem. So rather than being really kind of rules based, really processed, really kind of I've seen this before and therefore this is how I'm going to solve for it this time, you can be really creative in how you approach a problem. Think about it from lots of different angles, bring in lots of different stimulus and principles from way outside of your comfort zone, just to provoke you into thinking differently. I think there's creativity in how you also um, deliver something. So your own personal style, that could be in your written language, it could be as you stand up and articulate or, or kind of facilitate a session. I think you can be really creative in that way as well about in every angle, the tone that you use, the words that you use, the way that you walk around the room, you know, your body language. I think that's all creativity as well. And then I suppose kind of thinking about how you actively approach different people in different ways. I think that's creative as well. So you may have come across what looks like a similar challenge before, but this person you're dealing with is very different. This person cares for different things and aspires to different things. So how can you creatively think about how you're going to approach that person and and help them through whatever they're going through and whatever work we need to do with them in a new and different way? Um, And then I guess there's creativity in the thought leadership perspective as well. How do we think differently about challenges that have been around for years and years and years um, and, and think about how we solve for them in, in new and different ways. And then, you know, in, in my previous world of innovation, that it's all about creativity. Mm. It's all about stimulus and getting outside of, um, what was the Maltese physician's name? Edward de Bono or de Bono, he mm. talked about rivers of thinking. You know, how do you jump out of your rivers of thinking? Well, you, you do it by forcing yourself to, um, be exposed to new stimulus you know whether that is there was a story we used to tell around one of our clients used to travel a lot for work and 
every time he travelled, he'd go to a different lounge in the airport and he'd read a different newspaper. <laughs> you know, it's as it's, it's simple as that, really. You're going to be explained because we're all in our own echo chambers mm-hmm. in every single part of our life often. So that, that kind of, um, uh, that doesn't foster creativity, that smothers it. So being really deliberate, I suppose, about exposing yourself to new and different things. Mm. And one of the sort of business fashions at the moment that gurus, business gurus say is, you know, the importance of failure. Obviously, that's not terribly endearing in a brain surgeon or or a pilot. (laughs) Um, Have you had any significant failures in your career? And if so, how have you dealt with them? I mean, most days. (laughs) (laughs) I don't believe you, Joe. (laughs) I think it's such an important thing. I think the problem with the word failure is the word, which is, you know, and, and often people try and reframe it as learnings, but then people see through that and go, well, what you mean is failures. And I think there is, there's a nat- natural risk aversion around all of that. And that's something that we work really hard to solve, actually, when it comes to culture change, because mm-hmm. to change culture, you've got to change your beliefs. To change your beliefs, you've got to have new experiences. And when you have those new experiences, they're new. So therefore, you're possibly going to fail, and that's okay. For, for me, it depends. I think... it, it depends. It often isn't okay, is it? If you're a brain surgeon, it isn't okay. And if you, if, you know, if, if you're in all kinds of areas, it's really not okay. So I suppose I'm asking you, what is okay as a failure? Well, so the parameters are really important. When we talk about experimentation in the context of culture, you know, learning, testing, learning, failing is a core part of it. Would we do experimentation with an energy client on the effectiveness of their new hard hat on an oil rig? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But would we do it on testing out and, and empowering people to become more collaborative or more curious or more whatever it might be? Yes, absolutely. So I think being really clear on the criteria and the parameters within which you can experiment is really, really important. And not being afraid to say, actually, for this, this and this, this is not something you can experiment on because someone might die or Mm. because there are regulatory issues with our life sciences clients or our financial services clients, for example. Mm. But I'm yet to find an industry or a client who can't find something within their leadership and culture context to experiment on. I think... It can often be an excuse which is which is grounded in a real risk aversion, which many senior leaders have, many individuals full stop have. Um, and my failures, so I, I can picture in, in my project in Reading that I described to you, I, um, I was set off on this task that I won't bore you with, but it was some massive spreadsheet, if I remember correctly. And I really thought I'd nailed it and I took it to the partner and he said it was wrong. And, I went, and this went back and forth and back and forth. And I really felt like it tarnished my reputation. Um, and I think at the time, particularly as I was you know, quite new to the working world, it felt really difficult. And I think the only way I got through it was by a finding a kind of a, a brother in arms as we went through it, you know, to kind of console each other and to lift each other's spirits and B, to try and put it in a bit of context, which was, you know, it wasn't a life-saving spreadsheet. <laughs> no one was going to die off the back of it. And to kind of dust myself off, uh, off and pick myself up. But I I take failure, I really struggle with failure, actually, as despite the fact it's what I preach, because for me personally, I'm pretty sure it's because I care too much about what other people think about me. Mm. Um, and if I fail even though I'm telling people they shouldn't be thinking this way, I think people will think worse than me. 
And actually what I should be doing is celebrating the fact that I tried and failed and encouraging other people to do the same. God, I don't know anyone who's ever celebrated. I mean, failing is horrific. It's horrific. Uh, I don't know that anyway. Of course, it depends, you know, what you brand a failure. If it's some kind of workshop where you're experimenting, that's fine. But if you if you have in a professional context really, you know, failed to deliver something, I don't I, I would really argue with anyone who could make that into a pleasant experience. Well, it depends on the magnitude of the failure, I guess, doesn't it? You know, like the the, the um, Gulf of Mexico disaster, or you know, other stuff like that. That's you know, that's not something. Of course, you can learn from that, but that's not something to celebrate. You know, obviously, there's yeah, there are some terrible th- things and, and problems that have been that have ha- happened. But I think if you take the essence of experimentation, it's about chunking down something that's really big and challenging into bite-size elements and therefore because they're bite-size if you fail then the implication is far less serious Mm. and that's the missing piece of the jigsaw sometimes people look at the word failure or experimentation and go well I'm not going to fail at that because this will happen or this will happen or I'll look like this but if you're experimenting at that lower level then the impact of your failure should be celebrated as a as a success. Oh, sorry, not as a success, as a learning. As a learning. Um, yeah. And that should be encouraged. But if you experiment at, at such a high level or such a impactful level that any failure is going to be, you know, have terrible implications, then yeah, it's not something to celebrate. But I think that's the that's the challenge is finding mm. the right level, the, kind of looking in the funnel as it were, and going far down enough the funnel to experiment and, and fail and learn on stuff that will be advantageous to your growth and development and also to the organisation, but not significant enough to cause a big problem. Mm. You've talked about finding joy at work or how you find joy or at least pleasure at work. Mm. Lots of youngsters are now told to follow their passion. Mm. Passion doesn't necessarily pay the rent, of course. What advice would you give to a youngster starting out now? And wondering and wondering how to earn a living, basically. Yeah, yeah. I would say a couple of things. So firstly, have a really clear view of what you want to do and become. You might not have that view when you first start in the working world. So that's, again, where experimentation comes into play, right? Experiment. Try different things out. This is no longer the generation where if you move from job to job, people are going to look at your CV and go, well, I don't trust that person. Mm. You know, it's a very legitimate reason that you've been genuinely looking to find something you're passionate about. Mm. Employers will understand that. Um, So I think finding something that, being really crystal clear on what you want to do um, is important. That doesn't mean like a five-year, 10-year plan, by the way. I've never had one of those ever. What, you mean you're not Stalin? (laughs) No, no, quite, yeah, no, I mean, not today. But... uh, (laughs) I've never, ever had, when people say, you know, where do you want to be in five years? No idea. But what I do know is what gets me out of bed in the morning, what what makes me want to throw my duvet off. Well, that's a bit exaggerating. I'd rather sleep. But what I I want to do every day, um, and that kind of became my North Star. Mm. So I think that's really important. I think also there has to be a realism and pragmatism as an and alongside the fine thing that you're passionate about. Um, I've said this to our graduates at What If, you know, when I was I was at one point looking after our graduate kind of cohorts at What If, um, and they joined somewhere like What If, which was just 
you know, it, it, it was and continues to be incredible. You know, there's a plaque in the kitchen that says this place changes lives. It was gifted to the founders after 25 years because it's true. Mm. And, I, and I said to, you know, many of these grads, I, I'm both jealous and sorry for you in that you're now going to think that this is what work is like. Mm. Um, and it isn't necessarily. And I actively encourage you to, you know, find other jobs in the not too distant future. I don't want you to leave now. Thank you very much. I'd love it. I'd love that you're here. But, you know, work out what the real world is like. And, and that real world is changing for the better, I hope. But I think that that honest and practical view on reality is important as an, an equally important ingredient to you working out what your passion is and what you want to do. I think they've got to come together. Um, and that may mean like I have done, done roles and jobs that for me were more means to an end than the end itself. And, and rightly or wrongly, that, you know, that's how it felt at a time, but it's about moving on at the right time. Um, and I would say find not only the kind of the, the, the skill or expertise or topic that you're you know, super passionate about, but find a place where you feel like the culture is the right thing. And I know culture is a really intangible thing, but you walk in there, you get a buzz, you feel like the people around you are the people you want to spend time with because you're going to be spending more time with them than your family probably. Um, and not being afraid to, you know, ask your future employer for some people within the business that you can go and have a coffee with before you make a decision. I want to speak to someone who works in this team and this team, someone at my level, someone at the level above. I just want to get a really good view of what this place is like to work at and, and, and you know, whether I'm going to be a fit or not because it is that two-way deal. Mm. Great, great. Well, thank you so much, Joe. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. You can subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify, or any of the main podcast directories. And I'd be really grateful if you'd share, rate it, and or leave a review. Do follow at The Art of Work on Twitter or at theartofwork.co on Instagram, which is also the name of the website. And some personal news. My new book, Outside the Sky is Blue, will be published next month. It has been picked as a bookseller's non-fiction book of the month for February, a Times Sunday Times literary highlight of 2022, and the launch event will be at Waterson's Piccadilly on the 17th of February. I'm thrilled that best-selling writer Daisy Buchanan will be chairing the event. Details are on my link tree, and it will be lovely to see you there. And do join me for The Art of Work next week. <laughs>